Please sit comfortably. I'd like to speak to you today about um, a set of three koans, which I don't think I've given a Dharma talk on before, and they come from the Gateless Barrier, the Mumon Khan, and it's case 47. I'll give you a couple of versions, and because they're some of them a bit poetic and uh, a little complicated, it won't hurt to go through a couple of versions so you get the idea of it. So it's two showers, three barriers. The priest, Tushar, set up three barriers in order to examine his students. First one, you make your way through the darkness of abandoned grasses in a single-minded search for your self-nature. Now, one, where is your nature? The second one, when you have realised your self-nature, you are free of birth and death. When the light of your eyes falls, when you die, how are you free? And thirdly, when you are free of birth and death, you know where to go. When your four elements scatter, that's fire, earth, air, wind, when your four elements scatter, where do you go? Mm -hmm. Um, I'll give you another version, um, and then I'll give you my own simplified version of all of them. Um, Totatsu's three barriers, the first one. The purpose of going to abandoned grassy places and doing zazen is to search for our true, for our self-nature. Now, at this moment, where is your self-nature? Second one. When you have attained your self-nature, you can free yourself from birth and death. How would you free yourself when your eyes are going to the ground, you're about to die. And see, when you had freed yourself from birth and death, you will know where to go. After your body has separated into the four elements, where do you go? Mm -hmm. Or in my simplified version, um, when you're searching for your true nature, where is your true nature? Mm -hmm. When you are dying, where is your true nature? After you've died, where do you go? Where does your true nature go? These are very searching questions. And they're similar to some very searching questions which were made by the French Impressionist artist Paul Gauguin, who lived in the South Pacific Islands. And on one of his paintings, there's the words, um, who are we? Um, where did we come from? Where are we going? Mm -hmm. That's a koan in itself. You could, you, could, you could respond to that koan in the same spirit. You could respond to Totatsu's uh, three barriers. A few words about koans. This, comes from, this koan comes from the Gateless Barrier, which is the first text that we work on. Um, and it's the Gateless Barrier. It's a paradox, isn't it? There's a barrier, but it's gateless. Like, it's something stopping you from going forward, but nothing's stopping you from going forward because it's gateless. Mm -hmm. It's a bit like when you go through immigration, when you go overseas or you come back, you know, say you come back to Australia, and, and they're quite happy to wave you through as long as you've got your passport, you know, and it's up to date. Yeah, all the way, you know, go through. No? But if you haven't got your passport in order, no. <laughs> the boom goes down, no, can't come through. 
So it's kind of like that with passing a barrier as a koan. If your passport's all in order, you know, we'll, we want you to come through. Mm-hmm. We're not trying to stop you from coming through. And uh, so there's no barrier here. Bar- Totatsu's three barriers are called barriers, but in a sense there's no barrier. And one way of understanding koans, uh, do you know like we have, um, we have IQ tests, you know, which um, uh, measure, you know, verbal abilities and um, mathematical abilities and visual spatial abilities and so on. And then we've realised that that's, IQ is a very limited, specialised form of intelligence and there's many forms of intelligence. So we talk about now about EQ, you know, which is emotional intelligence and interpersonal intelligence. Well, in some ways, what koans do is that on the one hand they measure, but they help us to develop what you might call spiritual intelligence, you know, which is not some sophisticated intellectual structure at all. Um, it, spiritual intelligence, in a sense, is um, are, are, are you in the stream or out of the stream? You know, are you, are you separate from your life or you're not separate from life? You know, are you separate from life as it is? Right? Um, if you're separate from life as, as it is, not only do you struggle with koans, but you struggle with your life. Right? And to the degree that we've entered the stream, that we're one with life as it is, you know, and there's no separation, then koans aren't such a struggle. You get used to the kind of the challenges and the poetry and the metaphor of them. And, and once, you, once you get into that stream, um, they're, 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 they're playful experiences rather than struggle so much. But with any kind of play, there's a bit of struggle as well. It's got to be a bit of challenge in it to make it worthwhile. So they test our insight and they deepen our insight. And they're testing always. When I think of almost every koan uh, in our koan curriculum, in some ways they're, they're testing, are you separate from your life as it is or, you, or you're one with your life as it is? Same with mood, any koan. And again, come, to come back to the, new, the neuroscience way of understanding it, we're all of us to some degree or another trapped in, captured in our left hemisphere way of relating, left hemisphere way of relating to the world. We're caught up in concepts and language and so on, constructions, representations of the world rather than our right hemisphere direct experience. You know? So we get caught in that. And it's not until you do a Cohen study that you, you realise just how much you've been caught in that left hemisphere way of thinking. Even people who've been practising Buddhism for many years get stuck in it um, because they, they, they realise that they've developed a very good intellectual understanding of what Buddhism is, but they're still, it's still conceptual. It's not, it's not experiential. And, and we can delude ourselves into thinking because we've read a lot of books on Buddhism and we understand it intellectually. And by the way, it's a good thing to do, right? Um, but if you think that's what it is, you've missed the point. The point is to be not separate from life as it is. 
The other aspect about Cohen's study to mention as well, um, uh, Joko's teacher, um, Mayazumi Roshi, um, who was a real master at, at Cohen's, um, everyone respected his, um, his skill in, in using them. He, he said that we need to look at koans in two ways. There's the matter of the koan and the manner of its expression. And the matter is the point of the koan. Like there's a point to it that um, can be expressed in different ways by different people. But he was saying it's the, the manner of expressing that point is so important in koan study as well. You can kind of do it half-heartedly but the real spirit of Cohen's study, it's like a play. It's like you, you give yourself completely over to the expression of that point. Mm-hmm. So it helps to think of Cohen's study as like, thinking, you think of yourself like an actor in a play, do you know, and you, you don't want to do a half-hearted performance, do you know, you want to do an Academy Award performance, do you know, when you present the Cohen. So you do it like, you fully participate, do you know. <coughs> It's, it's because you're demonstrating this is how I fully participate in my life. How I fully participate in the expression of the koan is how I fully participate in my life. And so the matter is important as well as the manner. But whether you, whether, you, whether you want to do koan study or not is another matter. There's no one way of practising Zen. But whether it's through koans or through shikantas or whatever it might be, the point is to find a way of entering the stream so you're not separate from your life. That's what the, when we call it, talk about the ego, do you know, or the self-centred dream, basically it stands as separation. And where the separation is dissatisfaction, you know, and chasing after the wrong kind of thing. One way, one way of conceptualising our experience in the world is, and it's somewhat apparently paradoxical, but not really, is that we're observer participants. That's the term that's being used by a lot of um, Zen teachers who work in neuroscience and psychology, and it's also used in other dimensions as well. We're not just an observer, we're not just a participant, with this paradoxical thing called an observer participant, right? Just like there's particles which are waves, you know, and emptiness which is form, mm-hmm. and identity of relative and absolute. There is a, a collapsing of these two opposites into a single identity. So we're observer participants. Um, and when we're not really fully participating in life, um, then that, in one sense, we're not fully participating in life because of dissatisfaction. And also dissatisfaction arises because we're not fully participating in life. Um, At this point, I just wanted to um, tell you something from um, personal experience and personal history to kind of illustrate these points, because it comes more alive when you, when you talk about it personally. Um, since we've moved up to um, Avalon Beach, um, uh, I've rediscovered my love of swimming. 
So I go swimming as many times as I can during the week in an in a ocean pool at, at Palm Beach. And I really in, enjoy doing it. And it's a real, I've always loved the ocean and water. And, uh, but when, when you dive into the water and you swim, um, there's a real, the, I don't know anything else that's so close to feeling like you're immersed in life, right? Just immersed in it, like a fish. And um, it's a very joyful kind of experience. And um, I grew up on the northern beaches, but further down the coast at DY. And as a child, I must have been like eight or 10 or up to 12 or something like that. In the summer holidays, I used to go down to the pool. Um, but I, I, was a, I was a rather shy child and uh, it wasn't just shy, but I didn't mix a lot with other people down at the pool. And I remember that I used to sit, I used to go swimming, but I used to sit on the steps looking out at the ocean and the sky and everything. And um, a lot of the other kids were involved in competitive swimming and I didn't want to be involved in that. And I, I didn't particularly like their company either. I found it too raucous or whatever. And, but I used to sit there, I was an observer, and I just used to observe the sea and the ocean and everything, but I wasn't doing it in a way which was peaceful. I was actually very confused um, and I felt very lonely and sort of cut off and, and I was up in my head um, and trying to work, work everything out. Like I was being a philosopher at 10, you know, I should have been enjoying myself, but I was, I was trying to think it all out and work it all out. And, um, but it, I, it was a kind of a confusing, lonely, kind of unhappy kind of experience. So the point I'm making is that you can be, instead of being an observer participator, you can be separated from life by just being an observer, you know, and you're stuck in your head and trying to work everything out all the time. That's one way that we, we find ourselves separated from life. Now, some people have the opposite problem. Um, they look like they're participating in life, but they're not really. Um, but if I think of a lot of my school friends that I grew up with um, and been at, at some points being able to track where they went to in their life, um, they looked like they were fully participating in life, and, um, but in ways that weren't that great you know, um, getting into drugs early, getting into alcohol early, getting into sex too early, being in, involved in sport, rushing around, doing this and this and this, look, looking like they're participating. And as adults, doing that as well. You know, partying, workaholic, social, climbing for social status, caught up in life, gym junkies, whatever it might be, it looks like participation, but it's not because it's a grasping after something, you're one step removed. What's the it's kind of like, what's the next thing I can do to fill in the emptiness, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, you know? So you're never really there in, in the moment, really savouring life as it is. And that kind of life, while the observing life might have some depth to it, but it's kind of isolated and lonely, the other one is kind of shallow. Right? It's just skimming over the surface, going from one thing to the other, and never really tasting, you know, savouring each experience. 
So that's a form of separation as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there, many, there may be um, many forms of separation that it takes, but they're, to bring a duality into it, they're, they're two that you can think of. And when I, when I go swimming now, I, I sometimes reflect as I'm sitting there that now I, here I am at 72, sitting on the, on the steps with a lifetime of experience behind me, and how different it is to that little boy who was 10 years old sitting on the steps on a beach, but kind of lost and confused about where everything was going. And if you can relate to one or the other, like me, um, it, you may be like me. Actually, when I think of that little 10-year-old boy, I have a lot of um, compassion for him. Um, but it's, and I hope you do for your little boy or girl as well, who may have struggled and been confused. Um, but it's a very different experience now. Do you know, it's like I, I love the ocean and I love the sky and I love being outside and I love being immersed in the water. But, there's, but the, there doesn't feel like there's a searching for something else outside of that. No, that's the difference. Our lives, perhaps more than we realise, um, at the very bottom of it, are driven by um, anxiety and by fear. Call it existential anxiety. That might be another word for um, dukkha, uh-huh. part of it, dissatisfaction. But with all human beings, there's some kind of underlying anxiety, and we're driven in certain kind of ways by it, um, which are not in our best interests. Um, so we overwork, we overparty. We overdo it, we, we drink, we drug too much, we do things in excess, or we try to avoid it. So we're caught up in either greed or aversion, you know. Being an observer isolated is kind of like that's, a, that's being caught in aversion. Mm-hmm. But being just caught up in the hurly-burly of everyday life without any kind of depth to it, going after one thing after another, is to be caught up mainly in grasping. And as we know, they, they go together and they, they're both what contribute to, to suffering. So it's important when, when you're sitting to, to touch base with that, what I call the stream of dissatisfaction. It's a stream as well. Right? It's another form of the stream. But, but, but stay in touch with that underlying gnawing sense of dissatisfaction which is there and the anxiety that goes with it. Because it's what's, there's a body sensation of it occurring through our lives. And the more you recognise that it's there and you acknowledge it and take ownership of it and you experience it for what it is, then <coughs> you're starting to enter the stream if you do that. Even though it might be um, an unpleasant experience or a challenging experience, at least you're entering the stream of dissatisfaction. But if you try and ignore it, avoid it, run away from it in various kind of ways, it's there, working away, it's like an engine going all the time, you know, and it's it's driving you in various different ways in your life which are which are not fulfilling. One of the um, 
new forms of study which I came across recently is what is called um, process theology. Um, it's been around maybe 50 years, whatever. And it, and it seems like it's something which is um, very close to Zen and Buddhism because it's looking at um, life as being a stream, a movement. Mm-hmm. And in process theology, God is not a noun. God is not a thing. We've made God into a thing, which is the whole problem with a lot of organised religion. Right? And then you worship that thing. But in process theology, God is a verb. Uh-huh. It's a process, the doing, it's a stream. Mm-hmm. And if you can have insight into those words, personal insight into those words that God is a verb, well then when you come to these three barriers, um, you'll have some clear insight into them. Thank you.